My name is Jack and I live in the back of the Greta Garbo home With friends I will remember wherever I may roam Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And if you're listening to this episode, please note that this is a spoiler-filled analysis that explores the relationship between Stephen King and Peter Straub's sequel to The Talisman, The Black House, with Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. So for those of you who have not finished reading The Dark Tower series, I would cry off now and return to this particular episode after you have finished The Dark Tower because I don't want to say anything in here that would spoil any future plot development that you have not reached yet on your own. So, the first thing that I want to talk about um, is the Crimson King and the Crimson King abducting children. When we first encountered the Crimson King, he was a force that was imposing itself on the everyday lives in a recognizable reality within the pages of Insomnia. Ed Deepno was driven insane and began to beat his wife, Helen. Their lives were completely ruined by this force of what Stephen King was presenting at the time of universal evil. We saw his work in the pages of Low Men in Yellow Coats, where his goons robbed a child of innocence and belief in the world. He's been referenced in the pages of the Dark Tower as early in Wizard and Glass, but in that world, he's just one more magical being amidst a world of magical beings. Again, with Black House, his involvement threatens not just the multiverse, but the very real and relatable world that we exist in, specifically Judy and Fred's world, as Judy begins to go insane and Ty is abducted. When Jack flips over not into the territories, but into Midworld, Parkus explains that the Crimson King, known in the language of the dead as Ram Abala, exists in two places at once, which is a great way to thematically tie the character into the larger concept of twinning, by the way, and explains that the physical king exists in the top of the tower while the other lives in Kanta Abala, the court of the Crimson King. Through the conversation, King and Straub expand upon not only the mythology set in place by King decades before with the very first gunslinger, but also as recently as what he brought to the reader in the pages of Insomnia when he first introduced the Crimson King. We now have the desperation-inspired language of the uh, language of the dead terminology to apply to the character, creating more official and alien-sounding titles, consisting of the ones that I've just listed, but also Din Ta, the furnace, which is the world of chaos he will unleash if the tower falls. Parkus explains that many parts of Midworld have already fallen into his furnace, as we've seen. Furthermore, because he describes the furnace as chaos, it also ties into opposing forces that were introduced in Insomnia, because what is chaos but the random? Furthermore, Parkus also addresses a concept that was discussed in both The Wastelands and Insomnia, and that's of beings existing in the upper levels of the tower. The reason I say this is because when we eventually get to the tower, and this is why I wanted you to not listen to this if you haven't finished the Dark Tower series, but when we get to the tower, 
the version of the tower that we see is a physical tower with one inhabitant living in it, not at the top, but on one of the lower floors. Any beings that exist uh, within this particular tower are not seen, and the inside of the tower is furnished with Roland's memories because it's Roland who is the character that winds up entering the tower. So when Parkus or Blaine or Clotho or Lachesis refer to these all-timers who live out their existence in the upper levels of the tower, they are either speaking of a tower that we never see, a cosmic tower, or the tower that we do see is a chameleon and hides its true self in the final pages of the Dark Tower. And I'll get to more, I'll get to that in much more detail, clearly, once we get to the Dark Tower itself. Anyway, back to the Crimson King. Parkas explains that in the court of the Crimson King, there are many monsters. And that's a loaded word right there. And since we've been introduced to the Crimson King, we've seen the monsters in his employ. First Atropos, then the low men in yellow coats, and now Lord Malshin, the Cyclopean creature in charge of abducting the Breaker children. Our first impressions of the Crimson King are those of a powerful monster who oversees many other monsters, the things of nightmares, ultimate evil. Ultimately, and I've touched upon this in many other bonus episodes, <laughs> the Crimson King is revealed not to be a monster. And those in his immediate employ, as seen in the town of Divar Toy, or Aljul Siento, or Blue Haven, they're just simply blue-collar workers. Sure, they might have weasel heads or the heads of other animals, but they chat about their day in a manner that many of us are familiar with. Now, at the beginning of the Black House episode and in episodes of the Stephen King cast um, here and there, I have referenced the Black House as the last great Dark Tower story because this is the last time we see the Crimson King as a universal monster, and the last time we see his followers as actual nightmares. So you might bring up Mordred, the spider baby, but keep in mind that this character was simply a monster through appearance. Everything else about the character was worthless, whiny, pathetic. Whether King meant to or not, he subverts our expectations on his ultimate evil, and in the end shows us that evil is not the Wizard of Oz, but instead the man behind the curtain. So again, this is the last time that we see the Crimson King as an all-powerful monster when we eventually meet him in the concluding pages of the Dark Tower. As I've described him before, he is an impotent old man, powerless, just armed with a box of uh, imagery from Harry Potter, throwing bombs at at Roland uh, just to keep Roland from coming while screeching the entire time. You know, it turns out that he is bringing about the end of the multiverse on a budget. Uh, his characters, like I said, are just blue-collar schlubs going about their day and the just the, him in charge of one of the three fates from Greek mythology and the low men in yellow coats as they're presented in Hearts in Atlantis, and characters like Malshin and all of the nightmarish aspects that we see in Black House are not seen. 
So enjoy the Crimson King, uh, this version of the Crimson King, guys, uh, because we do not see this 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 version of the Crimson King again. And stuff like um, him being called Ram Abala is never referenced again, which is too bad because that's a great, great term. Him existing in two places at once is never fully explored. Um, you know, he's trapped in the tower. That does turn out to be true. There is some inconsistency there because he's not existing at the top of the tower. He's existing on a lower floor of the tower. Um, on the Kanta Abala, you know, I mean, does he exist? Does he exist in an astral state as well? Maybe I don't know. We we don't really learn a lot about the Crimson King, which is which is neat. I think that that's very interesting. That we don't get great backstory on this character. We get tales told to us from other characters who's who are unreliable i mean some are just fragments of fairy tales and and others are just told from uh from what they have heard about the crimson king and the result is just a a jumbled a jumbled puzzle put together of different jigsaw pieces that might not even come from the same box so he will always be an enigma. He will always be a character that never has any real identity. And I kind of like it that way. All right, guys, let's talk about the Breakers. The Breakers were a concept first introduced in the pages of Low Men in Yellow Coats. Though we've met potential Breakers as far back as Carrie, we meet the first prisoner of the Crimson King with Ted Brodigan in the short story from Hearts in Atlantis. We learn that the Crimson King has been enslaving these empowered individuals to break the beams. And it's in the pages of the Black House where we get more information about them, how they're imprisoned in a purgatory state where there is no time. This fills in Ted's escape with more dimension because we know a little bit more about the hellish existence that he was bound to. And it's funny because once we get to the actual hellish existence, um, it's not exactly what you would call hell. So here's here's some confusing parts. The the, the breakers are are defined here as you know breaking the beams, and there's the suggestion that they are existing in the basement of the tower while the Crimson King's at the top of the tower. They're in the basement and. They're toiling away, and it's dark, and it's dingy, and there's shackles. I mean, so kind of what you would expect it to look like is the the image that that we're we're, we're given. But it's also uh, confused with the imagery that the authors give of the big combination, which is a separate enslavement ring going on. Um, and for what purposes? I don't know. Is the big combination just another place for? children breakers to to do their work so we have one outpost in the thunderclap and one outpost here in end world where there's just this skyscraper thing i don't i'm not quite sure uh, is that what the big combination is just another way to break the beams um a more crude way that's what i'm gonna take away from this uh because when we eventually meet are breakers in the pages of the Dark Tower. Aljul Ciento is not the basement that you would expect. It's actually, it's like Pleasantville. It's this beautiful little community in the middle of this radioactive, decaying, poisonous wasteland where there is no natural sunlight. Um, 
that's just not what what you would expect and they they live like like kings out there it through through absolute comfort living side by side with the 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 can toy aka the the low men in yellow coats so it's it's very very interesting okay guys let's just talk a little bit about missed opportunity here um and the only reason I want to talk about it is because I've mentioned it before, and this is not necessarily my viewpoints, how I feel now, but I want to talk about it a little bit. I've spoken in previous Dark Tower bonus episodes how I had hoped for an Avengers-style mashup of Stephen King's greatest characters in the conclusion of the Dark Tower. Now, that was wishful thinking on my part. Aside from the constant inclusion of Randall Flagg and the later appearance of Father Callahan, there weren't any characters that would indicate that King was planning this. The Crimson King, Ted Brodigan, and Dinky Earnshaw were all written when he had more of a plan in mind. But the losers, Danny Torrance, Charlie McGee, Alan Pangborn, Tack, Thomas and Dennis from Eyes of the Dragon, they never appear. And in the end, you know what? It's fine. It's fine that they don't. All of these characters that I just referenced had battled their evil already. They came through it, and it would be malicious to ask them to come back again. Though it would have been nice if King followed up that dangling thread from Eyes of the Dragon of having Dennis and Peter continue their search for Flag, or even have Flag slyly mention how they had caught up to him and lost, but with all of that said, there is one character one character that should have been included in the final pages of the Dark Tower. One character that was strongly implied who would play a role in the Dark Tower books, and that's Jack. And of all of the Stephen King characters, this is the one that makes the most sense, more so even than Father Callahan, because the Dark Tower contains so many instances of world-to-world -world travel. Why wouldn't the one character who can willingly travel between worlds pop up to aid the characters in their quest? Something about Jack's inclusion just feels right. The authors knew it too. Peter Straub was the one who wanted to tie all of this into the Dark Tower series. So it's not as if he wouldn't have allowed King to use Jack in the final pages of the Dark Tower. Or perhaps even help him write it. Maybe King wouldn't have wanted to use Jack without Straub. And felt that using Jack without co-writing it with Straub would have had been a breach of their agreement. But still, to tease us the way they do only to never pick up that thread simply sucks. But going back to the characters I mentioned... I wouldn't blame anyone for expecting to see more famous empowered characters, even if they were versions of these characters from parallel worlds. During the course of the conversation between Jack and Parkus, Parkus explains how the Crimson King has abducted many telekinetics and telepaths from his world. If a reader extrapolating extra meaning in that, I wouldn't have been surprised. So the reader that reads this and expects to see a version of Carrie White or Danny Torrance or whomever... Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised um, if you felt disappointment that they never wind up showing up. And then we get foreshadowing. So did King foreshadow the nature of the Dark Tower? Or at least what the tower will present itself as in the final pages of the series with the parents of the Black House? In my review of Black House, I described how Black House was a twinner of the Black Hotel from the Talisman. But what if it was also a twinner of sorts to the Dark Tower? First, the name is a mirror image to the more famous structure, adjective plus building, two synonyms. 
Furthermore, in the Dark Tower, King will present the tower as a recreation of Roland's life. And here, in the Black House, he does the same with Charles Burnside. Rooms within the Black House um, house Charles Burnside's past, which Roland would recognize when he climbs the steps in the concluding pages of Book 7 of the series. And uh, another way of foreshadowing is the fake-out ending. The conclusion of Black House is very, very similar to the conclusion of The Dark Tower, where we get our end, and then you turn the page, and the authors insert themselves and say, you can continue reading, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's up to you to continue reading if you want to. And that's exactly what happens in the pages of, of The Dark Tower as well. Okay, guys, so here's the deal. If you are fans of the Dark Tower bonus episodes, um, please note that this is the last uh, Dark Tower bonus episode that, that we're going to get. The next time I talk about the Dark Tower will be during my Everything's Eventual review, and I won't be giving a bonus episode. I might just do a separate review on the Little Sisters of Illuria, I might, I might not, um, but I won't, I mean, but that story does not go into, does not need heavy, um, heavy analysis, uh, that would include spoilers, so this type of bonus episode, um, this is the last time I'm going to need to do it because once we get to the Wolves of the Kala, which is going to be here very, very soon, guys, when it comes to Wolves of, uh, Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, and the Dark Tower, I'm going to just assume that if you are reading Wolves of the Kala, you have finished Song of Susanna and the Dark Tower because these three books were published back to back to back. It's even kind of hard calling them three separate books as they're just, it's one big ass story. So... I won't be breaking, so when I start reviewing the Wolves of the Kala, I'm not taking out any spoilers and putting it into its own bonus episode. It is just flat-out spoilers for the rest of the series, beginning with Wolves of the Kala. So, we are almost there, guys. Can you believe it? That we are almost at the end of our Dark Tower journey. It's very, very exciting. I cannot wait to start to talk about it. As I'm recording this, I'm actually rereading um, Wind Through the Keyhole. Um... For uh for my for my later review of that, which which that will be further down the road. But anyway, guys, just want to give you a heads up for those of you who do want to follow along um, with with my reviews. If you are if you have not finished the the Dark Tower series, you have a little bit of time. We are getting there, but please note that when we get to Wolves of the Kala, I'm going to be spoiling the ending of the Dark Tower. But if you're listening to this. It doesn't really matter because you already know it. So, anyway, um, guys, make sure that you stick around next week as I get into my review of From a Buick 8, Stephen King's other evil car story. Um, and like Dreamcatcher before it, it was one when I sat down and I was thinking about the doing a, a podcast all about uh, Stephen King's books in chronological order. The idea of rereading this was not very appetizing to me. Um, so, how was it upon reread? Find out next week. And in the meantime, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here again next week where M O O N spells Stephen King. My name is Jack, and I live in the back of the Dark Tower. Dark Tower. Dark Tower. Dark Tower. Dark Tower.